Hi, welcome back to the show. This is attorney James Betzold, and this is the Prima Podcast. This is a show where we interview real attorneys and talk about the cases they've handled, uh, follies that they've endured, and successes that they've had. So, uh, our guest today is attorney Brian Green, who has many years of experience uh, in immigration, immigration court, and in the federal court system. So, uh, you're going to learn a lot. Uh, we talked about taking cases to, to federal court and how that can be helpful with naturalization and other types of cases as well, uh, and denaturalization cases even. Uh, as always, the show is brought to you by Prima Fasci. Prima Fasci is the immigration professional's preferred choice for auto-filling forms, managing the caseload, and preparing the final packages that you need to submit to immigration. Um, easy to use, very simple. Look, if you're an immigration attorney or an immigration professional, you know the importance of reducing errors, uh, of having that good, consistent information across all your forms, and you also know how important it is to collaborate with your clients to gather information and documents and put that into your package that needs to be submitted um, Prima is great at saving you time with the package assembly feature. It will literally save hours of the copying and collating and printing and reprinting and then reorganizing and then doing the table of contents. We automate all of that for you. Uh, so check us out. There's a free 15-day trial at primafashinow.com. Description and link is... Sorry, the link is in the description here. Uh, again, a special thanks to attorney Brian Green for joining us uh, for... The show. Thank you. Hello, I am Attorney James Betzold, and welcome to the podcast today. I am here with Attorney Brian Green, and Br Attorney Brian Green is a practicing attorney from Los Angeles, California. Currently from Los Angeles, California. Previously from where, where, Maryland, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, mostly East Coast. All right. So obviously, made a really good decision in moving out west, where there's more sunshine. <laughs> all year round. Mm -hmm. And so one of the one of the topics that have been happening in some of the Facebook groups for immigration attorneys recently has sort of revolved around uh, federal court litigation. So this is different from the Executive Office of Immigration Review where you fight very different. You go instead to a real court. Um, where there's rules of evidence, there's no Due presumptions process. on either side. Yeah, it's it's a more fair form, in my opinion. Yeah. So, Brian, before we get started, just give us a little bit of your background. Um, you know, talk about your early experience. I know that you were part of the, some firms. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wanted to do immigration sort of from the get-go in law school, but I didn't have the language skills that you said that you had. So I didn't naturally fall into immigration, but uh, I took the class in law school and enjoyed it. Uh, David Leopold was my professor when I was in law school in Cleveland. But I ultimately went into trial and civil litigation work first. And I didn't go right into a law firm out of law school. I took the low paying government jobs and I clerked for a state trial court judge, which is the least glamorous clerkship in the whole world. But it was kind of nice to talk to judges and have them kind of recruit you. Like, hey, come on, come to the Poconos, come to Erie, Pennsylvania, come to these 
out of the way places where they don't have a law school. So they're looking for people to come clerk. And I clerked for a, a really good judge that was a former uh, county prosecutor and a former assistant U.S. attorney uh, for about 20 years. So he was a, um, a good trial attorney and he sort of, it was like an apprenticeship almost. Like after law school, you come out of law school and you don't have any hard skills yet. And the judge I worked for let me sit into criminal court, family court, uh, child custody hearings, all of those. And that launched me uh, into a job as a public defender in West Virginia. And the first day I showed up, they gave me a stack of cases and said, okay, you know, you're in state court on Tuesday, you're doing a parole revocation on Thursday. And you know, you can't be sued because you're a public defender. You're, you're part of the state system. So you have immunity. Go have fun. And Oh, wow. Yeah, that's the really, it's the way that you should, in my opinion, you should learn. Because if you're a big law firm, you're going to third chair, you're going to work your way up to second chair. Maybe you get to do some small cases here and there. But if you're a prosecutor, public defender, you're going to go and work cases from, from start to finish really by yourself. And I was in an office small enough that we had about five public defenders. So you did everything. You did appeals, you did juvenile cases. And that's where I first started doing writs of mandamus, writs of prohibition in the state court system, challenging judges on what they were doing. And they hate that. And I also got the chance to start doing some federal writs on behalf of prisoners uh, under the Eighth Amendment. So my first... Sorry, let me interrupt. What kind of mandamus uh, actions did you have as a public defender? Just trying to get the courts to act on things. Um, mandamus would be more, I guess, affirmative rights defense for, for those people. And then writs of prohibition were trying to tell the judge they couldn't do something. And mandamus cases were, I guess, were easier to win because it's easier to exercise a right versus to tell a judge that they don't have the power to do something. Um, in federal court, it was more um, writs of habeas saying that the conditions that the uh, institution were placing the person in were, were um, unhealthy, they were uh, cruel and unusual punishment. And the one person I worked on, uh, it was in state uh, penitentiary, but needed uh, cancer treatment. And his family actually had the drugs from his doctor. But the way the prison was set up, they had like an HMO and you weren't allowed to bring your own medicines in. You had to get the medicines from a, a pharmacy within the prison system. So I actually went into state and federal court challenging that person's uh, conditions of confinement. And now it's a very hot topic because with COVID-19, you know, every single detention facility, whether it's immigration or criminal, you know, people have this heightened risk of becoming sick and dying there. And I haven't actually got to work on a habeas case in the last year or two. So I've been kind of missing out, but my practice focuses more on business immigration cases and family immigration cases that have kind of either gone sideways or are stuck. And federal courts are a good way to pressure the immigration service or to get review of decisions that you feel are not fair. So once you had some experience under your belt as a federal or a state public defender? State public defender. Yeah, state no, no glory defender. for me. And state public defender, you actually get to do jury trials, whereas federal public defender, they'll often spend a year or two working up a 45 count indictment with 15 defendants and people are <laughs> pleading against each other. Whereas in state court, especially West Virginia, juries, jurors 
uh, don't try to get kicked off the jury pool. So a lot of them are state or federal employees themselves. So they don't have to, okay. they actually get paid to go to jury duty. So it was a, a place where the average citizen really did want to be part of the criminal justice system. And I did about 11 jury trials in two years. So my goal was to get as much jury time as I possibly could. And then I moved to Pittsburgh and started doing civil litigation defense and ended up working as outside counsel for General Electric Company and General Motors Corporation on wrongful death cases, asbestos, uh, toxic tort litigation. And that's where a lot of young civil lawyers cut their teeth is on the lower paying sort of insurance cases that the law firms handle. And uh, I, I got some good opportunities. I did some commercial litigation there. I did a lot of discovery work for GE. They had a lot of turbines and uh, generators and large, you know, mechanical devices. And I got to kind of do my Indiana Jones thing, crawling around uh, steel mills in Pennsylvania, West Virginia, looking for serial uh, numbers on big devices. And um, if anyone ever played Dungeons and Dragons, I actually made maps of all of the industrial areas and put keys in there. And this is where the Cutler Hammer is, this is where GE's at, Westinghouse is over here. And it was just a, kind of a fun way to, to make the kind of case that people would see as being kind of boring, make it interesting for me. Hmm. That's great. So then after uh, after that work, what, what finally got you into immigration? My boss said that I couldn't do asbestos work forever. I'd done it for about three years, two years. And, and she said, you have to have something else. And I was at a corporate law firm and they, you know, they gave me a list and these, these lawyers were all reading their practice management magazines. And it said, you know, ways to diversify. And they just had a list of case types and what was immigration. And I thought, I've got an A minus in law school in that course. I really enjoy it. And we were at that point hemorrhaging those cases and referring them out to other law firms. So I said to my boss, who was my patron, she said to her other partners, let's let Brian start a practice from within the law firm doing corporate immigration work and a little bit of family immigration thrown in there. And I was up to about 30, 35% of my caseload was immigration, but I was teaching myself which mm -hmm. is not the greatest way to learn. Not so, <laughs> yeah, I basically said, you know, I want to go and work for either a uh, either a boutique practice or like a Fragman or a Barry Alpman. I wanted to go work for someplace that really did a lot of immigration work. And I ended up landing at Murphy Law Firm in Baltimore, Maryland, which is my home state. So it was nice to move back there. And they now have, I think, around 20, 21 lawyers. When I got there, I think they had around 10 or 12. So... To have that many immigration lawyers in one place, our, our in-house CLEs were pretty high level, and yeah. they were looking for a litigator. And this is back in 2007 when there were very long backlogs of I-45 cases, especially for Indians. And Murthy Law Firm sort of specialized in working with uh, third-party consulting companies, a lot of Indian IT H-1B workers. So I did a, I did a lot of H-1B and I-45 litigation at Murthy Law Firm from 2007 through 2016. So about 150 okay, so, lawsuits there. Wow, that's a lot. Mm -hmm. um, so for even some immigration attorneys who maybe don't do employment, what's an H-1B? Just yeah, H-1B is sort of like the, the poster child for the either the popular or unpopular foreign workers or H-2B workers, I think you said you may have worked with uh, in New Orleans. But H-1B is the, the visa occupation uh, category for people that have a four-year degree or the equivalent and experience. And we think of these as white-collar jobs. They've been kind of constricted over the last 15, 20 years. But I think a classic would be like a data analyst 
um, software engineer, uh, professors, doctors, anyone that has to have at least a four-year education. And then the way that immigration fights us on now is whether there's education that's related to the jobs or not. But H-1B um, is a natural stepping stone to a green card, which is a way to eventually get toward your citizenship in the U.S. Okay. So then like the H-1B petition process, when you're going through that, um, if I remember correctly, this is one where you have to do like a labor certification first. Is not that, labor that, certification. You do a labor condition application. So yeah. you're not testing the market for workers. The labor condition application is a promise to the Department of Labor that you will not pay any wages less than the prevailing wage and that you won't give any benefits or any working conditions that are worse than those you're offering to U.S. workers. So it's not a test showing that there's no worker available. It's just saying I will not damage the U.S. workforce because I will meet these minimum requirements. And the idea is to make H-1B workers more expensive than U.S. workers so that there's no incentive to hire a foreign worker over someone who's already here. I see. Okay. So uh, you got experience with, with a lot of that at the Murphy Law Firm. Right. And – and, and then where did your career take you? I ended up going to Toronto for a year and working for a captive law firm that was associated with Deloitte. And that was literally H-1B, five, 600 cases at a time, every minute of every day. And it, it taught me a lot of things about law firms and practice management, but it taught me that I didn't want to be in a super high volume environment. Murthy Law Firm was pretty high volume, but when you work for Deloitte or Pricewaterhouse, you're talking just, just thousands and thousands thousands of cases. So I ended up spending a lot of time with, with spreadsheets and working mm -hmm. with just um, working with employees, moving them around from assignment to assignment and complying with the H-1B program regulations about when amended complaints had to be amended petitions had to be filed, when you could simply do a new LCA or update a posting. And it wasn't for me. It, it was good to, to experience it. I was actually a a non-immigrant worker myself in Canada. So it was interesting to be on that side of things. But ultimately I came back to Maryland and worked for a law firm that represents Johns Hopkins and the University of Maryland uh, system. And there I got to do more of the O1 outstanding researcher, outstanding scientist work. I did a lot of EB1 cases for physician researchers, for professors, not so much for the executive, international executives, but mostly academia and people that were filing patents or doing a lot of publishing. And uh, that's exciting work for me as well, because all these different areas I've learned, I now have the ability to do the litigation when USCIS doesn't work with those cases properly. So I've just been adding different experience tabs or different tools to my tool belt along the way. Awesome. Well, that's fantastic. So Let's go right into that then. What are some of the cases you've handled or some of your favorite cases where either USCIS or the Department of State or one of these agencies just refuses to play ball, refuses to approve something? Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of classic archetypes of, of, of litigation cases that we deal with. From my point of view, the interesting ones are H-1B cases because USCIS, without changing any of the rules, without going through notice and comment, doing any regulations, they just are trying to shrink the number of occupations that H-1B workers can be approved for. So that gets into a lot of the summary judgment practice that I learned back in the toxic you know, asbestos world. And now it actually comes up more, whereas for the last 10 years, 
a lot of the litigation was more you filed a, a complaint and they just work things out with you. Up until about 2015, 2016, you file a lawsuit and you got this great result. And now lawyers have to actually know how to do all the steps toward the end when you're finally getting a judgment from the judge. Uh, but H-1B cases are near and dear to my heart. Um, I-45 cases used to be the bread and butter, and these were cases where the FBI might not have finished all the background checks for someone to get their green card. So you might have a Chinese national that went to do a PhD or went to, but they got a PhD in China before coming to the US. And to get into a PhD program in China, you had to be a party member. The Communist Party required you to be at least a student member. And that's how you actually got into the programs, how you got into different jobs. And when people come to the US, especially if they're working pro se, meaning that they're filing a case on their own without a lawyer, or if they're working with a lawyer who doesn't do enough of the volume to know. If you see a scientist from China, you basically have to ask them, were you a party member? And then you have to explain to them what that means because you have to disclose it and there is a waiver and people get their green cards approved. Or even if they have waived it, they might have had a background in material science. Mm -hmm. And there may be some issues about dual use technology, where something that could be researching could be used for military purposes. And then the government does extra, I don't know if it's five or 10 more background checks on that person. But um, I think as in 2007 and to the first couple of years, you had large amounts of Indians who had these background problems. I think as time has gone on, they've sort of eliminated themselves from the backlog, either through going to a senator's office or going to a congressperson's office, doing the lawsuits. Now, I think the focus for me is more on cases where USAS has made an incorrect decision. So that's getting me out of my comfort zone in the, in the business immigration world. I'm starting to do more of the family cases. And one case I filed last week in through co-counsel in the Eastern District of California was over a adoption of a, a Mexican national who came to the U.S. and has been here for a number of years, came at age two or three, I believe. And USCIS is saying that the Hague Convention on Adoption applies in his case. And we're saying, no, no, he came in before X date. Hague Convention does not apply. USCIS denied the case. It went up to the BIA. And the BIA affirmed the USCIS district director, which they almost always do. So now we have sued the BIA and sued USCIS, the National Benefit Center in St. Louis, and we're taking them into federal court. And when you get to federal court, it's almost like you're getting mediation built into the process because you're getting an assistant U.S. attorney or a DOJ oil attorney, an Office of Immigration Litigation attorney. You're getting a fresh set of eyes for some from someone who isn't in-house. They're not a USCIS lawyer. They just represent USCIS in federal court, and they don't want to look like a fool to the judge. So by raising the cases out of the USCIS or out of the DHS um, family of agencies, you're getting a different level of review there. And so I'm trying to now spread my wings and do more of the odd cases. I think the oddest case you probably could find here would be like an Adam Walsh Act case. If someone wanted to bring a fail, you know, bring their spouse in from, let's just say Russia or something, mm -hmm. but Adam Walsh Act requires that the consular officers reveal prior criminal convictions to the K-1 or to the immigrant visa applicant. And at the same time, if uh, 
the U.S. citizen has done something bad enough to a family member, they actually won't approve a, a, an immigration benefit there. So, so do, you have a case, do you have a case like that? that you I've never done one yet. They're, they're sort of the um, – I think they'd be sexy to immigration lawyers and to lawyers in general, but they would be rather repugnant to the general public when you talk about protecting yeah. people's rights. So brief background, the Brian Walsh Act cases that we talk about is where you've got a sex offender of some sort. Mm-hmm. Usually sex a, child, offender, uh, a child sex offender, right? I'm not sure the extent of it. offense against a minor. Minor, yeah. So yeah. talking about the least, the least sympathetic people, and these people may want to marry a foreign national. They may want to adopt someone. Right. Or they may, they may live here. They may be this, they're the sex offender here. They want to petition mm-hmm. for uh, someone to come into the U S and live here, marry them, things like that. Uh, we've seen those cases here in Michigan, even a mm-hmm. um, couple on the docket still. And they're typically tough cases to win. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to have all sorts of proof of rehabilitation, show that sure. they're not a danger to anyone, that they're not bringing in someone maybe who has a small child mm-hmm. and that child's going to be at risk. Uh, that's, I think, really the purpose of the animal yeah. tech. I, I think I can see the assistant U.S. attorneys or the oil attorneys being much more sensitive on those type of cases, especially if they're thinking, I don't want to be the attorney on the record when there's this, you know, horrible another you know criminal act later on and then there's gonna be a newspaper article talking about that so i think humanizing your client would go a long way and the yeah. part that i enjoy in those cases not the adam walsh cases but just in in these more complicated litigation is i enjoy the evidentiary side of things mm-hmm. and as a public defender i was always trying to work with expert testimony work with lay testimony do i you know i called an a doctor one time in the case, I never got the doctor qualified, but the jury didn't care that he wasn't an expert. He was the ER doctor from the local hospital. So in in those cases, (laughs) maybe you're dealing, you're dealing with psychiatrists, you're dealing with probation officers, parole officers, Mm -hmm. maybe someone has to deal with a psychologist, you know? Um, So I, I, I like that kind of work. And I think you can, if you're looking at doing these kind of cases, you can start with the simpler green card delay cases. You can do a writ of mandamus, trying to ask a judge to force the U.S. Immigration Service or Department of State. Everyone thinks you can't sue Department of State because of the doctrine of consular non-reviewability. non-reviewability yeah. But that does not apply to delay cases. You can, you can, I mean, you can, if there's, there's very constrained review of consular decisions. And if you're in the Ninth Circuit, you can actually get some review, but delay is not a decision. So you can sue in any circuit in America, you can sue Department of State and say, hey, this K-1's been pending for like a year and a half at the consulate. There's just no reason for this. And as you graduate up into the more complicated cases, I think naturalization cases might be the next hardest one. You're Then you're either dealing with a delay and you're suing in federal court saying, hey, my client had their interview, they took their English test, they took their civics test, they passed all the requirements, but we haven't had our O ceremony. Or you can have a case where they see something in the record and they don't want to schedule the person for their naturalization interview because something's wrong, then you file a writ of mandamus saying, it's been three years, my client deserves to have his interview. Or you, you know, if you have a bad decision in a naturalization case, you have to file an N336 and do the appeal within the agency. But that's a good thing. And you can also, um, there's a lot of debate about, do you want to do appeals or do you want to go right to lawsuits? The strategic question is, did you do a good job at the benefit stage building your case? (laughs) If you didn't, you may want to do an appeal or motion to reopen, motion to reconsider, because you left something out, you didn't file something. Right. But 
with N336, you go through that process. Once they, if they deny it again, then you have a statutory right to go directly to federal court and you can get attorney's fees, you can get costs reimbursed to you. So I think after the naturalization cases, the next more complicated would be the denaturalization cases, which we've heard about, haven't seen a lot of them coming out yet, but DOJ has an office just to review natural case, naturalization cases that have been approved where someone may not have revealed something, they may have had an inadmissibility that should have kept them from getting a green card, they may have had a good moral character problem that should have kept them from getting their naturalization. DOJ wants to go and open those cases up and denaturalize people. It used to only be, be Nazis, and they were hiding in Michigan or Cleveland, and they were 90 years old, and yeah. they were from Hungary, or they were from Poland, and they were you know 18 years old in the 40s. But now it's going to be more people who maybe they left uh, a child's name off their diversity lottery application, mm. small little things that might not have prevented them from getting their green card if it was revealed, but by cutting off an avenue where the service or the officer may have investigated further, fast forward 20 years, they may be able to take someone's naturalization away. Yeah. Wasn't there a case last year at the Supreme Court about that where one of the, I forget which justice it was, she was like, oh, so you're telling me that the information he didn't give wasn't enough to make the case go the other way, but it doesn't matter because he didn't say it. And so you want to just take his citizenship away. Right. From that. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> there's, there's a big case. I don't know. I mean, I know the case you're talking about and it was very interesting reading. There's a case called Kyungus that we all kind of look to about materiality and about whether or not something that was withheld is going to be a problem. So I think it's a moving target, but certainly with this administration, they want to go after people and they want to deny, they want to reopen, they want to rescind when they can. So I think the way for us as lawyers to challenge that is to review cases when there are denials or there, you know, if there's RFEs and, and notice of intent to deny, we should respond strongly. If you get a notice of intent to revoke, again, you want to respond strongly and make sure that USCIS is actually following their own internal regulations and their own policies. Because if they change that, if they just start ad hoc making decisions that don't make sense, that to me is a definition of arbitrary and capricious. And that's why we have the Administrative Procedure Act and that's why we have federal judges. So I think my mission over the next few years is to get as many immigration lawyers as possible comfortable with the idea of bringing lawsuits against USCIS. Because I think Chances are, if you're, if you're doing a decent job on your underlying cases and you're using a little bit of a jaundice eye when you look at the cases that you're going to bring in federal court, I think doing those two things set you up for maybe even better than 50-50 chance of succeeding in federal litigation. I lost my video stream here. Give me one second. See if I can get it back. <laughs> we'll get back to this. All right, I'm back. I'll, and I think, I'll edit this part out. <laughs> no, no. And one question that I often see in the Facebook groups is, has anyone done a federal lawsuit on an I-140? Has anyone ever done an, a, you know, a federal lawsuit on you know, removing conditions on a green card? They, a lot of lawyers, I think maybe in law school, were taught that you, you find these pieces that magically fit, you know, square to square, circle to circle. And to me, when someone says, have you ever done this type of lawsuit? It doesn't matter if if you have a case where a applicant or petitioner has paid money to USCIS, has filed the correct forms, they're entitled to get a decision and to have a fairly 
adjudicated decision. So it doesn't matter if it's an I-864, it's an I-918. I've done lawsuits on SIGE cases. I've done lawsuits on almost anything you can think of. And to I me- I saw that in, in your list of successes on your website, you mentioned the SIGE case. Yeah. Can you go into that one a little sure. bit? Just because, I mean, we've handled yeah, yeah. a lot of SIGE cases and I'm, I'm curious what, what was the no, point that- I only handled, I, I was in, I did SIGE cases in Maryland for about a year and I only probably only did about six or seven of them, but I'm glad I got to, I wouldn't say dabble, but I'm glad I got to go to state court and do that portion of the case before it gets to immigration. But mm -hmm. in the case I filed the lawsuit on, the kid was going to age out and had an immigration court hearing like January the 7th or something. So we filed, this was still, actually, this was not at Murphy Law Firm. This was at my later firm. We filed a lawsuit with a request for a temporary restraining order telling the judge, hey, this kid's got an immigration court hearing in like a week and a half, two weeks away. But he's got this I-360 pending at the Vermont Service Center. Once that 360 is approved, they can dismiss this case in the immigration court. So we filed it in the U.S. District Court for Washington, D.C. And I guess I have... I've been taught by the people that took their time to train me over years that you can't just file a lawsuit or file a motion and, and expect it to be taken care of by itself. You need to create a sense of urgency around the case. So in that case, I emailed a copy of the actual complaint and the docket to a, um, a prior opposing counsel who happened to now be a deputy um, chief in the U.S. Attorney's Office. He was a civil deputy chief there. So um, one of the lessons I learned was is don't be too aggressive with your opposing counsel because they might be in charge in four or five years. That attorney turned my email over to his boss, the chief of the civil division, and we actually got the case resolved within like 24 or 36 hours. It was really, really fast. Wow. But at the same time, I was getting an email from the judge's law clerk saying, are you available on Thursday or Friday? Here's the hours the judges are available. We'll need you to be fully briefed and ready to present on a telephone hearing. And meanwhile, U.S. Attorney's Office is calling USCIS saying, we don't want to have this hearing. <laughs> get, get that attorney. Or there's an attorney advisor at, at the VAWA unit at the Vermont Service Center. Pull the case. Get it done. It got done. We withdrew the lawsuit. So in cases where there's an absolute deadline to either leave the country, an EAD is expiring, you know, H4 is expiring. If you can show the judge that someone's going to have consequences after a certain date, you may be able to do a preliminary injunction or a TRO, and then you have moved yourself to the front of the line of all of these cases. So that SIG case was great because there's nothing more sympathetic than a SIG kid. I mean, it's like yeah. in Maryland, you can go up to age 21. So I've been into court with kids who have, you know, beards growing on their face. And I'm like, <laughs> the child you are, the child needs protection. The child. <laughs> but it's true. And um, yeah. I like involving, you know, including photographs in my exhibits. You know, I, I, there's ways to um, show the human side of these cases. And uh, SIGs are, SIG and VAWA, I think, are the most sympathetic you can possibly get. Yeah, absolutely. We've handled some, we've had some of those in state court here, the where you get the preliminary order uh, from the, from the state court judge and you got to know your judges turns yep. out in Michigan, but um, right. in Maryland, we have a uh, red on either end of the state and I'm from one of those sides and the middle is dark, dark blue. But even in a tough court, if the child is there, you know, the aunt or the friend, whoever's, you know, being the guardian, if you can show that they meet the requirements, I, I think you can push through. Yeah. One issue that we had with one of the state judges here, he's not on the bench there anymore. Um, but he, he would flat out say, 
he did this to me in one case. We had filed a number of these and he had approved them. Mm-hmm. And then there was one where he was like, you know, you're just trying to do a runaround on the immigration system. You're just trying to do this. You're just trying to find a loophole. Mm-hmm. Like, no, this is a legitimate pro- provision of the INA, Your Honor. Right. This is a scam. I don't know why you're even doing this. I'm like, are you kidding me, Judge? No, <laughs> no. I, I, it's, it's bipartisan le- legislation. Same thing with U visas. There are certain yeah. districts. And like I had a U visa case. I think it was Winnetka. I don't remember what the county is, but it's the county right next to Cook County. And it had a very, very dark red tinge to it. And they just mm-hmm. said, we don't ever certify any U visa uh, applications. And I was like, but in California, it's the opposite. They say, you know, there's rules saying they can't refuse. Oh, so awesome. yeah, district by district. And I, I remember talking to an ALA mentor in Chicago and she said, you're not going to get a U visa certified there. But yeah, yeah no, actually there are U visa you know, legislation. You know, there's a long line. There's a you know, 10,000 limit per year. So um, any anything where the person has no other options left, or it would cost so much to go back and start over. I think those are the situations where litigation gets more. I, I think a lot of people are worried about suing the government. They're worried about retribution. They're yeah. worried about uh, something happening to them because maybe if you're from Honduras, you know, those things might happen. But I try to reassure people and say that there's, it's not a monolithic situation where there's one lawyer that runs the entire government. There's a, a team of lawyers between different agencies working on cases. So I don't, I've never seen retribution in my life. And I think that people should be willing to go to court for their, for their family members, for valued employees. You know, if you're an EB five investor, you certainly want to spend your time pushing those cases because you've invested so much already getting to that point. Yeah. So have you found that when dealing with the federal government or uh, federal prosecutors, when you take a case Mm -hmm. to federal court, um, do you find that they know much about immigration law? No. um, D.C. is an exception because a lot of these lawsuits go to D.C., I think primarily because uh, it's easier to get licensed in D.C. federal court than a lot of other places around the country. And I think the D.C. judges and the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office has a very high level of knowledge when it comes to immigration and Administrative Procedure Act cases. It just It's APA, all the environmental, procedure, uh, environmental protection agency cases all basically come through D.C. So when you're doing APA litigation, you're often looking at EPA precedent decisions, even though it doesn't make sense to you. It's all about, well... Is this, are they allowed to make these changes? EPA, I think, balances a lot between different parties taking power. So mm-hmm. I think that the average AUSA in D.C. has probably got some experience. There was a guy there who his name was Wynn Kelly. He's now an IJ. But for a number of years, he did only immigration cases. Or I can't say he did only. I'm only aware that he did immigration cases there. But I think if you're filing lawsuits in like the Northern District of Ohio, Northern District of Illinois, if you're filing cases more into the the central or into the away from the major cities the assistant u.s attorneys may not have as much experience and i had one naturalization case in philadelphia eastern district of pennsylvania where i had both an ausa and i had an oil attorney the ausa had been on the job for 20 plus years new procedure like the back of her hand really really good lawyer but knew no immigration at all and then the oil attorney was a recent hire who was an air force jag attorney who had come over and she was learning immigration on the job but they really didn't know the naturalization procedures that well so i felt like i was the expert 
on the immigration side. And I actually had to correct um, their statements to the judge during a hearing one time because they were talking about requirements. I had to say, no, Your Honor, I think this is incorrect. But um, I, I think we as the bar, the immigration bar, I think we have an advantage on the substance and they clearly have an advantage on procedure because they deal with procedure every single day and they deal with those judges every single day. So um, especially DC, I mean, they probably have something like a hundred plus assistant U.S. attorneys there. So it's a very deep pool of talent and they, a lot of those attorneys come from the uh, big law side. They might've been in a big law firm for four or five years. Maybe they're at Dikema Gossett or they were at, you know, Arnold Reporter, but they typically have uh, good education, good training, may have clerked for a judge, and then they come over. And the assistant U.S. attorneys, that's a job you could stay in for the rest of your life, or you could become a magistrate judge. You could go and work in one of the agencies as counsel, but um, they have good resources. So you, you have to know how to negotiate. And I, I believe the earlier you get your case to opposing counsel and work with them, the better chance you have to resolve it. So what are some things that you think, uh, I mean, because there's a lot of immigration attorneys now who are really taking a serious look at federal court. We're seeing some really ridiculous decisions come out of USCIS, some denials that are just like, you know, we've never seen anything like this. Yes. This case exactly like this. I filed this for the last 10 years and mm -hmm. routinely approved with like an A plus, right? And now we're getting an RFE. We're getting, you know, pages of like where they will literally recite, you submitted Exhibit one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, all the 30 exhibits that you submitted. And like, and we read it and we don't you think have failed to satisfy the requirement. <laughs> and sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think what I think attorneys look at this and they're frustrated by the decision. They're angry, but they don't know the steps involved to, to litigate. They don't know, is this a five hour commitment? Is this a 25 hour commitment? And I think the way to, make it work for everyone involved. Cause your client's angry cause you got a denial. You got to explain what happened. They've been approved five times in the past. This is their fifth extension. They're upset. And I think what I would tell the lawyer is you should invest in defending those cases that are coming from your own office. Mm -hmm for several reasons. One, USCIS knows who sues them and they know who do a, do, do a good job. So if you're talking about a decision made by your local field or district office, absolutely, you wanna sue them and do a good job because that's your reputation, that's your bread and butter. If you're working at the Philadelphia office, you know, maybe that's 80% of your work, so totally do it there. Also, when you're talking to the client, you can tell them, hey, things people make mistakes, agencies make mistakes, we can re get you review this way, but I'm going to do it for you low bono. I want you to pay for the filing fee, the service of process fee, and maybe pay the equivalent of a, of a cheaper RFE. Give me $1,000. And then I want you to assign to me all EJA fees and costs that we recover. So in your agreement, low bono retainer agreement, if we get EJA fees, they come to me as the attorney until I'm compensated for my time. That way you can negotiate with the government and say, Hey, I'm either, I mean, I love telling judges I'm pro bono. I will use that all the time. Mm -hmm. Even if it was my case and I, I charged them a year ago, but if I'm doing the lawsuit afterwards for free, mm -hmm. do it for free. 
And then I have not actually won EJA fees in my career. I've done like 170 lawsuits, but when you resolve a case of negotiation, you don't get attorney's fees. I mean, you could try to negotiate and stipulate to attorney's fees, but that's really what you have to negotiate with is, hey, if you lose, USCIS has to actually pay me out of your budget. Not the U.S. attorney's budget, but the USCIS budget. So they don't like doing that. that. We'll forget that part. Right. So, and then it gives you leverage in that way. But also, if you do this enough, you are eventually like if you do FOIA lawsuits, much easier to get EJA fees through FOIA. If you do enough of these lawsuits in house for yourself, eventually you might hit and get some EJA money out of it. But say you do five lawsuits over a year, that office, whether it's the California Service Center or your local office in Nebraska, they know who you are and they're going to stop messing with you. So, I think it's a way investing in your overall approval rating both with CIS and also your client. If you do that work for them, low bono, and they, you get the approval, they're going to love you, you know, get a testimonial for your website, put them on Yelp or something. But I think it's a way for you to take a loss and turn it into a win. And maybe you also get higher credibility and maybe you also get attorney's fees. You said something interesting there. The, you know, saying that the local office might be messing with you. I yep. think that is 100% accurate. Sure. I know that at, at least, in our practice, one thing that we've seen is, you know, at one point we said, you know what, you don't need me to go to the interview with you. Let's oh yeah, the good old days. Good. Go by yourself. You're going to be great. And we we get like a request for evidence. It's like, oh, we need another copy of this, and then we need this, and we need this, and and the client comes back and they're like, what happened? We're like, we don't know. You tell me what happened. And just you know, just not being there, right? Sort no, I, of I, let that officer get away with a bunch of nonsense like they were asking for stuff which wasn't relevant wasn't <laughs> asked for it's not on the list of documents that uscis requires even in a typical discretionary sense there's no reason that they would ask for that i start going to every single interview right. and we get none of that now right. and, and when it, they start to push we push back no yeah, i'm gonna it, sit it, next it, to my it, client actually no i'm in not your rfa response i think you want to actually cite circuit decisions and, you know, they might say, well, you know, I mean, outside of a DC decision, they'll say, well, we're not in DC, so we don't have to follow that. But DC, when it comes to APA, DC does set the standard and the courts. So I have Westlaw. I know not every immigration firm has Westlaw or Lexis, but you can use ALA and you can use the federal litigation listserv. You can get five or six case citations and put them in there. Cite matter Chwath preponderance of the evidence. Go to their, I go to the USCIS policy manual all the time. Cite their policy manual back to them and say, you're not, you're not reviewing the evidence correctly. You're not weighing the evidence correctly. You're discounting evidence impermissibly. You know, if they're going to cite matter of treasure craft all the time, we got to cite things back to them, but that's how you're building your case for federal court. And if you've done the lawsuits, eventually they may stop messing with you as much. And one thing I don't do is I don't ever send a copy of a, a complaint. I know different USCIS field offices, different practices. I never want to threaten a lawsuit and not go through with it. And I, a lot of my work is co-counsel. So if you're an attorney and you're in Wyoming and you've never done a lawsuit before, I'll co-counsel with you and share all of my templates, teach you how to do the work. But I want to get paid. And then my, my uh, fee agreements usually say that my flat fee is earned in full when I file the lawsuit or when I serve it on the defendants. Uh, to me, filing or preparing a lawsuit and not filing it is a shame. Uh, 
you put your work and your sweat and your toil into it and your emotion. I want to get it on the record. I want credit for my work. And I think when you always file your lawsuits and never threaten and never bluff, I think your credibility, like if Ira Kurzban sends in an RFE response saying, I'm going to sue you, they believe him. And I think you build that reputation over years and years. But I think lawyers need to you don't have to make the greatest lawsuit. You don't have to do a Mona Lisa to be effective, but you also don't want to just file a two page template you got from, you know, from an ALA conference five years ago. I think you need to put some effort into it, but there are ways to make it cost effective. And over time, I think you and your clients benefit from it. So have you found that, uh, I mean, for many, cause you're talking about doing it low bono, pro bono, pro bono <laughs> has federal litigation been, um, or have you seen cases where you really wanted to take it, but the client was like, no, I'm not going to fight. I don't want to pay any more money for this now. Uh, yeah, I, I have one or two and I've done it pro bono just to keep the case going. Cause now that I'm a solo lawyer, I can be foolish and, and waste time and money on cases. I always make the client pay for the filing fees. Mm -hmm. And I also make them pay uh, courtesy copies going to the judge, the chambers, uh, sending a copy to the U U.S. Court of Appeals in D.C. I make them pay for all the incidentals to show them what's going on. Um, mm -hmm. If you're really hyper about it, you could probably even like keep track of your time and send the client a bill saying, you know, uh, what would you say? Is this does the courtesy, my right? So Here's my $5,000 worth of work. But um, yeah. I, I think as lawyers, we're privileged to be licensed. And if there's a, a VAWA case that you can do for free, or if you want to learn, just go and volunteer. I used to do uh, more volunteerism on weekends through clinics because I, it was a way to go in and just do one case or do a couple hours of volunteerism. If you want to just take one case on, if you hear someone say, uh, especially I think on the listserv, we see, well, someone either is in a state where they don't have licensure or the case got uh, transferred based on um, change of venue. Mm -hmm. You know, if you want to learn, volunteer to work with that lawyer who's from Michigan, but the case got transferred to California. And then I think it's good publicity. I think it's good for us to learn, um, especially if, if your caseload is a little bit slower, you know, invest a little time in learning how to do this. But the American Immigration Council has a lot of resources available. And when I'm working with younger lawyers or less experienced lawyers, I'm often sharing just PDFs. Like they have one really good practice advisor on service of process. And it has the ad, the addresses are somewhat outdated, but it says you have to sue the attorney general. You have to sue, you have to serve the civil process clerk at the U.S. attorney's office. Uh, there's some really great uh I don't know what you call it. There's a lot of good public interest lawyers at AILA and at the AIC that have done this work for us to make sure that we don't have to do all this work from scratch every time. And then also the um, AILA has a federal litigation task force. And if you have a good case and the client won't pay, they are doing class actions where they will take your case in or Jesse uh, Bless, who used to be an oil attorney for a number of years and a supervisor there. He's now our ALA litigation um, director, director of litigation, and he will answer questions and help you out too. So I think cost shouldn't be a, an a obstacle because the filing fee for federal court is $400. It's cheaper than doing a motion to reopen. The I-290B is like $700, $800 filing fee. Mm -hmm. This is half of that. And you're going to get a better review on the merits than you would at the AAO or the BIA. So you may have to do appeals at a time, but I think we need to demystify litigation and find ways to make it cost effective. And 
if you're doing a large volume of cases and you can't afford to do one lawsuit pro bono, low bono, I just think you're being chicken. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's, there's attorneys who say, well, you know, I, I choose to do my pro bono, low bono stuff specifically yeah. on VAWAs or specifically on yeah. other types of cases. Take, take a VAWA case as a lawsuit. Yeah. yeah so well, at the risk of sounding like one of the people on the, on one of the Facebook groups, because I am <laughs> one thing that we've seen recently is like these uh, with a 601 or a 601 a mm. It used to be we would never see a denial. We would prepare them really well, get all the details. And now, like I was saying, they give you a list of stuff and say, mm -hmm. try again. Are those ripe for federal for federal court review? I, I haven't researched that. So I, there's a question about whether or not you can sue over a discretionary judgment. So I think you'd have to look at the decision. Um, I-45 applications are discretionary. So it's harder to file a lawsuit on a pure adjustment of status issue, but even a discretionary decision can't you can't misapply the law along the way. So but it still can't be arbitrary, right? right? It can't be arbitrary. They can't choose to ignore an expert witness because they say he's um, hired. And we're seeing this now. People are saying that your expert's biased. Of course, yeah. your expert's biased. You hired him or her, and you gave them a report, and they—it's you know, a adversarial system. So, if there is a violation of procedure or policy on the way to getting a denial of a, of a waiver, a six hundred one or a six hundred one a, I would say absolutely look at doing a lawsuit and see can you do that. And I mean, the worst thing that can happen with a lawsuit is that you lose. So, if you already have a denial. And you've already lost anyway. So what do you right. get? You got so, nothing to lose. Except <laughs> and there are there's mediation at the district court level and there's mediation at the circuit court level. And those mediators are taken from the pool of practicing attorneys. They're hired. They have mediation training experience. They love to mediate and they will do it for you. You can actually give them your complaint. You have to file. You have to be, you know, it has to be pending. But the courts really want mediation to be used. So, I mean, you might want to start off, file the, your lawsuit, get into mediation, and if that doesn't work, then you go on to motion practice. Uh, personally, I would say go in, negotiate yourself first, then go to mediation second, and then go to motion practice third. But mm -hmm. um, I, I try to err on the side of saying almost every case should be a lawsuit-ready one, and let's make, you know, let's find the exceptions and then you know keep them out later. But I, I'd rather try to bring a lawsuit if it absolutely could. There are certain things like you can't challenge a removal order in district court. I mean, there are jurisdiction stripping statutes and you have to know what you're doing. But generally speaking, the APA, I think it has a five or six year statute of limitations. So you can challenge a lot. The crazier the USCS gets, the better for us because it's harder to defend those things. And when these officers are writing their decisions, they'll, they'll mention your evidence, but then they'll say the three or four reasons why they're not giving it any credit. Those reasons are often just personal statements of belief. They're not grounded yeah. in procedure or law. Or science or medicine. I mean, what what we've seen every occasionally now is they say, ah, yeah, we saw your mental status exam by the licensed uh, clinical psychologist, but you only went to them one time. Mm -hmm. Therefore, you're not really sick. When the truth is, they only went one time because they didn't know about it. They didn't know that, mm -hmm. oh, after suffering a traumatic injury or a traumatic situation or being abused for years, uh, 
that, hey, you know what? It actually does help and there's mm -hmm. no social stigma to it. Sure. And it's going to help you live your life. And yeah. so we're the ones as the attorney saying, hey, you never sought treatment. Go do that. And so you they know, go and, and maybe they don't have money to go. Yeah. Access, months. social stigma. I mean, I had one client actually who was in Detroit and she was schizophrenic and it was a class A, class B kind of situation. And mm -hmm. as long as she was in America, she took her meds and she was a great mom. When she yeah. went back to India, her family cut off the meds and she just devolved and had to like be committed. And so it was about, I mean, we literally had a psychiatrist do an evaluation and I had to seal the envelope at the adjustment interview waiting to pull it out. Like, uh, but yeah, I think, I mean, obviously you'd like to have that person be seen multiple times, but that's not, the rules of evidence don't strictly apply in immigration. This is administrative procedure law, mm -hmm. or administrative law, but they can't ignore uh, competent evidence. So I, a lot of what I do in my litigation is harping on preponderance of evidence. Are they increasing it to substantial, clear, and convincing beyond a reasonable doubt? So I go back and I try to dismantle the decision in the RFE that came out in whatever type of case it is and say, well, there's all this evidence here. You haven't put up your own evidence because you're an administrative agency and you're not you're just, you know, citing to public record. You're making these comments. If they're not showing you the evidence, that's a violation by itself. So you have to get somewhat intimately familiar with their procedures and show when they're not following them and go after them on proponents of evidence after them on procedure. Yeah, the, the devil's in the details. And if they're doing it fast and sloppy, I mean, a lot of these officers, and I, I give them credit for doing their job, they have quotas. And they are told what to do and they're told we want you to get stricter on this or we're going after financial analysts because we don't think they need to have a bachelor's degree. So I, I absolutely think that you should um, hold their feet to the fire. It's not a Daubert analysis like it would be in federal court with experts, but it's right. not they just get to pick and choose who they want to ignore. Well, right. I mean, even even with USCIS, when you're submitting, at least in waiver cases, you know, you got to submit their their CV, their their resume, their curriculum vitae, all, all their experience, a copy of their license. So they hold a license from the state that's issued by the government and they're writing this opinion with those credentials. And if you, I mean, for the government to just ignore it, it is inappropriate. And then those are the cases it's harder for the assistant U.S. attorney, the oil attorney to defend those. So the, the, the sloppier the decision, the more outlandish the statements the officer makes. And they, I've had them make literally incredible. I, so I did a lawsuit over a coach, a um, Division One swim coach. And I had found seven or eight different universities that all were advertising for swim coach. They said that these universities were not in the same um, field of endeavor or something. And I'm like, there are division one schools that have a swim program. You know, what, what more similarity do you need to have between them? So, um, I I'm fighting on evidentiary battles because I think we can, I don't think the officers who are at USCIS and don't have training in these particular areas are well equipped to fight us. And we have more time than they do, but we're in a profit-based um, profession. So we have to kind of pick and choose where we spend more time. So for me, that's why I do flat fee cases. And it lets mm -hmm. me spend my time. If I have a case that needs more work, I can do it there. If I was hourly billing like I used to as an associate, I'd just go crazy. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, Brian, I want to thank you for joining us today. Man, I, 
I personally learned a lot and I'm sure yeah. when we post this people, you know, other attorneys who, who listen or who watch, uh, I hope they get some confidence, yeah. you know, from hearing you. You'll feel so good when you, I, I have a co-counsel in, in Hollywood and we won a case in San Francisco. It was very fast. A TRO was filed. We won the case in like two or three days. He said it was like electricity going through his veins. He's like, power. And that's why we went to law school. We went to law school to win cases on a fair, in a fair system. So the more yeah. angry you are at CIS, if you've been doing this for 20, 30 years, remember the good old days, like when there was no H1B cap, you know, mm -hmm. back in the early 2000s. I, I think there's a lot of, um, schadenfreude there's a lot of satisfaction that comes with resolving cases that way and again you're taking denials and turning them into wins so if you can manage your clients expectations and defray the cost or get them some partial buy-in from your clients i think once you get past the first lawsuit you won't it's the fear of the unknown is worse than the reality because People do these cases and do similar federal court work all the time. You need an ECF number. You need to learn how to do the ECF filings. But if you hire a co-counsel knows how to do it, we have checklists and we'll train you how to do it. So um, to me, I think it's worth the investment. Yeah. Yeah. I know for us, I mean, after, I think immigration attorneys in general are just used to sort of getting abused by USCIS yeah. Yeah. or whoever. And it's just, it's so empowering to be able to say, hey, wait a minute. I went to law school. I have a law degree. These yahoos deciding these cases and writing these decisions against my firm, yeah, they did not go to law school. They maybe did an eight-week training course and some periodic right. updates, and they don't really – they don't understand the law, and that's yeah. why – Keep they aren't this. reading cases. They're not taking first year of law school. They're not going through and learning the traditions that we have, which I think hopefully trains us to respect the law and not so quickly – Say, I mean, I, I've had one USCIS director tell me that she enjoys having lawyers as her stat, her adjudicators, but they're slow and they write too much. So <laughs> USCIS really has goals and has metrics and has a volume, but we have the power of our law degrees. And, you know, it's, I, I think that once you do it and once you see the results, I mean, we all want to have a published decision saying that we're right. We want to get the e-defeats afterwards. But in reality, I think a lot of the cases that are incorrectly de denied can be resolved through negotiation. You just get a lot more attention once you file the lawsuit. Sure. So share with us briefly again, the jurisdictions, the uh, federal jurisdictions you're licensed in so that we can, so that if there's an attorney listening, they're like, boy, I really got one of these VAWA cases that got denied, or I got one of these other yep. cases and I want to appeal it. I'm going to go contact attorney Brian Green. We're going to co-counsel on this. What, what jurisdictions are you in? Federal court uh, for district courts. I'm admitted in Maryland, two of the Pennsylvania district courts, both of the West Virginia district courts, Washington, D.C., New Mexico, Nebraska, Southern District of Texas, Eastern District of Milwaukee, because I did a, a quash a subpoena there one time. Mm -hmm. So um, the more federal court admissions you get, the more work that you can do in the system. I'm waiting right now on my New York license, and that will hopefully get me all the New York district courts there as well. Um, venue, there's a very good venue statute. So you may be able to bring a lawsuit against CIS where the decision was made, where the plaintiff lives, or where... Um, Another district, I guess, there's three or four different ways you can bring um, a case under the venue statute. So I think if you have that kind of denial, contact me, contact someone off the federal litigation listserv, and just put it out there. Hey, I've got this. It's a California Service Center decision. My client's living in 
Washington State, and this is the facts. And people will try to help you figure out what's your best venue choice. And um, I'm happy to co-counsel and actually move for people's admission if I've known them long enough. But um, the idea is to train the soldiers who are going to fight USAS. And the more of us who file lawsuits, San Francisco is so busy. We were negotiating with a paralegal before the attorney, US attorney, sorry, the assistant US attorney got able to talk to us about the lawsuit. So I'm actually a proponent of following the lawsuits in Nebraska and California, Vermont, follow them where the service centers are located because I think they have much lower volume in those courts. Whereas if you're following in, if, in literally San Francisco, they have a, a standing order for immigration cases that there, there are so many lawsuits being filed and so many pro se lawsuits being filed that they have to have an order to help um, corral those in. So um, wow. my, my website has uh, greenusimmigration.com. All of my admissions are listed there. But if I'm not admitted, someone else in AILA will help you. We all want to do this work, and we all want to win the cases for you. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank uh, you for the opportunity. Got this. Is that your greenusimmigration.com? That's correct. All right. That's the website. So you can visit Brian Green there. Find him on Facebook. Co-counsel with him. Looks like, I mean, this is what we need to be doing. We need to be going after the federal government, over after USCIS, and fighting these ridiculous decisions. Yeah, it's the way that we get justice for our clients. It's the way that hopefully we can change what they're trying to do right now. And it, I don't know what's happening with the next election, but if things don't change, litigation is going to be a hot, hot area. And if you're looking to diversify, and people might be with the, with the consoles shut down right now, and your your kid is so cute. Look at that. Um, she won't go away. Litigation is the way to um, help you know, bring some money in until things go back to normal, which hopefully we see. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, James, for on the podcast, and hopefully we can do it again soon. Can we have you back another day? And absolutely, we'll talk. We'll talk about some other topic for sure. Perfect. Thanks a lot. <laughs>